said, this is why we tell you don't cohabitate, don't fornicate, don't look at pornography, don't create a standard of beauty that is not your spouse, and then compare your spouse to that standard of beauty. Have your spouse be your standard of beauty. Welcome to The Barnabas Effect with Paul Purvis, Senior Pastor of Mission Hill Church, a multicultural, multi-generational, multiplying church focused on shining the light and love of Jesus Christ like a city on a hill. You're invited to visit any of the three locations in Temple Terrace and Tampa. For information and locations, visit missionhill.org. Now, with today's message, here's Pastor Paul Purvis. At the heart of who God is, is the word passion. Think about this. When we describe the week that, uh, that Jesus lived out the gospel, when he accomplished on the cross and was buried and was resurrected, what do we call that week? It's the passion week. At the heart of who God is, is this reality of passion. And he's created us in his image to be passionate people. And that passion is described here in verse 5. Your two breasts are like two fawns, twins of a gazelle that graze among the lilies. We've already discussed that, that Scripture teaches clearly a comfort level with the body and the understanding that a husband is to find satisfaction in that body of his wife. And just as that man is to do his best to understand that emotional need by caring for her body, the wife recognizes that need to meet physically of her husband. By the way, it's pretty clear by this point she's not clothed in flannel PJs. But I want you to think about that description. How would two phones in the valley be approached gently with tenderness. You don't want to scare them off. I, I want to remind men that a sexual relationship is not a time to try to demonstrate what you try to demonstrate when you're working out at the gym. It's not your he-man moment. You're not king of the mountain or Conan the barbarian. Second, I want you to understand again that a relationship, a sexual relationship in the context of marriage or any other way must never cause physical harm or violence. That is not God honoring. That's a perversion of reality that has been taken out because of modern, secular writing and film. Look at verse 6. Until the day breathes and the shadows flee, I will go away to the mountain of myrrh and the hill of frankincense. Now, I don't know what he's talking about for real there, but in the last chapter when he talked about the mountains of separation, we know where he was going. And here, I just want you to see, that's where Lionel Richie got the words of that old gospel song all night long. Because he says, until the day breathes and the shadows flee. It's sensual. Now, why is this so important? Husbands and wives, I want you to understand something in light of what we've learned about God honoring sex. Your spouse is the only God honoring way 
for you to experience that sexual passion that God's given you. Anything else is sin. So wives, if, if, if you're not working at this to, to make this a, a, sensual, a, a sensual reality in that relationship, it really does open the door for temptation and, and the things that would call men. If you're not taking seriously that strategic part of making sure this is an enjoyable moment for your wife, it opens the door for temptation and sin. Which leads to the third thing. God honoring sex is securing. It's securing. Because trust is an essential characteristic for God honoring sex. Your simple application here would be, be trustworthy. Be worthy of trust. Live your life in such a way that you can be trusted. And so that you garner trust for the one that cares about you. It's crazy that society has made fun of our vice president, Mike Pence, because of his adherence to what is called the Billy Graham rule that he's decided that he will never be alone with another woman that's not his wife. Why would he make that rule? It's not for everybody else. It's to garner trust with her. Why do I make sure my wife can pick up my phone at any time and, and see what I've been looking at or who I've been texting? Because it garners trust. Why do we share our life openly because it garners trust and we see that that's happening even on the honeymoon night look at verse seven you are altogether beautiful my love there's the third time there is no flaw in you he compliments her he builds her up i want you to think about just that difference and again i'm giving some stereotypes and so 100 percent of people don't fit into this but in general even in a Christian setting, on that honeymoon night, I mean, the man has been waiting. He's excited. He, he, he is so thrilled about the moment. And, and so if, if not careful, he's going to burst out of that shower, ready to go, uh, singing that song, let's get it on. I mean, Marvin, I mean, whatever. And typically, that's not the case with a woman. There's typically a, more of a shyness, more of uh, an awareness of... Uh, unsettled. I'm not sure of this. I heard the story of this husband and wife. They were on their honeymoon night and they had saved themselves from marriage and they were both a little nervous. And so they decided we're going to ease into this. And so they decided to take a shower in the dark together. But unbeknownst to them, they're in the hotel. They were a little confused with the uh, bathtub drain. And not too long into the process, the tub began to overflow. And they found themselves there with the lights turned off, mopping up the floor with towels. I mean, things just weren't working out quite like they had expected. I would just say to you, these are moments to be sensitive, to be compassionate. To admire one another. This is not a time where to look and go, whoa, a few too many raisin cakes, hey. That's, that's just not okay. 
Look at verse 8. Come with me from Lebanon, my bride. Come with me from Lebanon. Depart from the peak of Amana, from the peak of Sinir and Hermon and the dens of lions, from the mountains of leopards. You have captivated my heart, my sister, my bride. You've captivated my heart with one glance of your eyes, with one jewel of your necklace. You are the one for me, he's saying. Look at verse 10. How beautiful is your love, my sister, my bride. How much better is your love than wine and the fragrance of your oils and any spice? Your lips drip, drip nectar, my bride. Honey and milk are under your tongue. The fragrance of your garments is like the fragrance of Lebanon. Now just think about it. Honey and milk are under your tongue. This was not a peck on the cheek kiss. I mean, this is getting sensual. And in the context of this relationship, there is security. There's an awareness that they are for one another. God has given them to each other. That is better than wine. Charles Spurgeon, the old English preacher, explained why God-honoring sex is better than wine. He said it's enjoyed without question because it's biblical. It never turns sour. It never produces ill effects. And it always produces a sacred exhilaration. And that leads me to perhaps the most surprising word in all of this talk. God honoring sex is sacred. It's a holy moment. Well, why, why in the world would I say that? I can't wait to tell you. Look, look at verse 12. A garden locked is my sister, my bride, a, a spring locked, a fountain sealed. Your shoots are an orchard of pomegranates with all choicest fruits, henna with nard, nard and saffron and calamus and cinnamon, with all the trees of frankincense, myrrh and aloes and all choice spices, a garden fountain, a well of living water and flowing streams from Lebanon. Awake, O north wind, and come, O south wind, Blow upon my garden. Let its spices flow. And then the response of the bride. Let my beloved come to his garden and eat its choicest fruits. Wow. Solomon describes his bride as a garden lot. What do you think that speaks of? I believe it, it speaks of her virginity. That, that's the only really way to tackle this passage. In an ancient wedding, not only would the couple go to that adjoining room, what would take place after the consummation of the wedding is that the bedsheets would be brought out for the fathers to examine. And there would be evidence on the bed sheets of the virginity of the bride. If there were not, the father of the bride could be into great trouble for deception. But it was looked at as such a holy moment, even those outside of the couple's family would know of its sacredness. But I want to take you back even further than that. I want to take you back to the beginning of the book. Genesis chapter 2 verse 24 says, Therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. There in the Garden of Eden, 
you have the first illustration that human beings are created in such a way that the sexual relationship is literally an outward picture of the inward reality of two becoming one. You are physically joined together because for the rest of your life, you're intended to be emotionally and spiritually joined together. God honoring sex is a physical representation of the spiritual realization of what God intends to take place in marriage. And we know that even because of the ancient words that were used. In Genesis 4 and verse 1, it says this, Now Adam had sexual relations with his wife, Eve, and she became pregnant. The word for sexual relations in the Hebrew in this case, it's going to be interesting for you, is the word yada, Y-A-D-A. And every time there's God-honoring sexual relations in the Hebrew language in Scripture, it is that word yada. Now, men, let me just clue you into something. Whenever you're in the mood, you now have a new way to discuss this. You just go up to your wife and she say, hey, don't you want to... uh, and she says, what? And you said, you know. And she says, what? And you go, yada, 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 you know. <laughs> but listen to this. In that same Hebrew scripture, when it's not God's way, there are different words used. It's the word porneu, from which we get the word eventually pornography. And it's the word shakab. So when we're told about David and Bathsheba, it's not yada. It's porneu. When we're told about the rape of Tamar by, Te- by Amnon, it is, it is not yada. It's shakab. And there's always devastating consequences. If you've just joined us, you're listening to The Barnabas Effect with Pastor Paul Purvis. Video of the message you're listening to is available when you click the Watch tab at missionhill.org. Thanks for sharing time with us and for sharing your financial gifts by clicking the Give button at missionhill.org. And now, with more of today's message, here's Pastor Paul Purvis. But when it's experienced God's way, we understand that this is not a contract. This is a covenant. And so let me help you see something you probably have never seen in church. How did God symbolize his covenant with people in the Old Testament? By the shedding of blood, the sacrificial system. When Jesus died on the cross, he told us he became the new covenant. How do we know that Jesus became the new covenant? By the shedding of blood. Hebrews says without the shedding of blood, there will be no remission of sins. Marriage in Scripture is intended to be a covenantal relationship. It's not a contract that you can opt out of when you're no longer happy or no longer attractive or no longer entertained. It's a covenant. So much so that in God's ideal design... That covenant is formalized when blood is shed on that honeymoon night in the consummation of marriage. 
So God honoring sex means you save yourself for your spouse. And then you give yourself to your spouse. In case you wonder if this allegory is taking out of context, let me remind you what the New Testament says in 1 Corinthians 7 and verse 1. Now regarding the questions you ask in the letter, yes, it's good to live a celibate life. But because there's so much sexual immorality, each man should have his own wife and each woman should have her own husband. And the husband should fulfill his wife's sexual needs and the wife should fulfill her husband's needs. The wife gives authority over her body to her husband and the husband gives authority over his body to his wife. Do not deprive each other of sexual relationships unless you both agree to refrain from sexual intimacy for a limited time so you can give yourself more completely to prayer. And after that, even, you should come together again so that Satan won't be able to tempt you because of your lack of self-control. I say this not as a concession, but as a command. Scripture makes it clear. Getting this part of the marriage relationship right is a sacred and holy and obedient act. But let me give you the last phrase to a little bit of mood music, apparently. God-honoring sex is satisfying. God-honoring sex is satisfying. This is important because most of what we've heard about sex in church is, Don't do it! And yet what you're seeing in Scripture is, This is great. You just have to wait to the right time. Wait and experience sex God's way. And when you do, it will be very good. So we end chapter 4 and chapter 5 begins with these words. I came to my garden, my sister, my bride. I gathered my myrrh with my spice. I ate my honeycomb with my honey. I drank my my wine with my milk. Now, I'm not going to explain you exactly what that means. Because Kimberly will not let me. But let's just say he is describing the satisfaction that came from being with his wife. And notice how many times he calls her mine. And then we have something pretty amazing. In your Bible, it probably says others. And after others, it says this. Eat, friends, drink, and be drunk with love. (laughs) Now get ready. Among theologians, there's only two acceptable explanations of who others are. Either others is seen to be God. And so God is looking down on this marriage that seems to be satisfying, and he goes, yes, this is the way I created it to be. And I want to remind you that everything God gives us is good because God is good, 
And so everything God created, he meant to be enjoyed for our pleasure and his purposes in the context for which it is giving. And so it makes sense that this could be God saying, yeah, y'all keep it on. Keep, keep going. You're, this is great. But some think this is Solomon. <laughs> and remember where Solomon is? He's not far away. He's in another room. And so some would say that he kind of comes to the door and he says, Hey, y'all just keep eating and drinking. We're going to be in here a while. Y'all just stay drunk with love. Good night. Solomon out. I I want you to see that God honoring sex is a good thing. And I want you to walk out of here today to make a commitment to enjoy that God's way in his time. If that's an opportunity that he puts before you. I've talked about this a, a few different times since I've been pastor of this church. And I, I wanted this time to, to really have a little more of a serious tone and let you see the biblical theological why behind why this is so important. But I recognize even still, I mean, there's some struggling with guilt today. Because you look at your life and you go, it didn't take me long to realize I I wasn't living up to the ideal. I missed it in this area. And I want to remind you that in any area of our life, for any of us, we're never dependent upon our righteousness, right? Our only hope is the righteousness of Christ. And and so if that's you living under the guilt of past sinful decisions, um, number one, if, if you've already confessed that to God, let it go. Don't let Satan remind you of, of, of your past. God has forgiven you. If you've, not forget, if you've not asked his forgiveness, spend some time in this moment just confessing that to God and seeking to be right. Some of you here, though, there are other emotions of like shame and anger because um, you weren't able to experience this ideal because someone took that to you, took that from you. There was abuse. There was something that occurred to you. And I, I would just, I would beg you today to just rest in God's grace. Trust his mercy and his peace and, and his comfort in these moments. Allow him to take that away. Others of you, you, you look at this with anxiety because you can't even... <laughs> You just can't think about what that's going to be like. Maybe because you are young or or maybe just you're in that stage where you could be married, but that's not happened yet. And I would encourage you that in any area of anxiety or fear, we're to give that to the Lord and, and let the God of peace give us peace which surpasses all understanding as we trust him and, and try to, to lead out in his way in this area of our life. But I also want to remind you why the other perspective that we look at Song of Solomon is so important. This book reminds all of us that God is desirous of you. And he not only knows you intimately, he wants to be known intimately by you. That's why we sing songs like Jesus 
lover of my soul. That's why when I was growing up, we would sing a hymn called Every Day with Jesus is Sweeter Than the Day Before. Every day with Jesus, I love him more and more. That's why we sing that new praise chorus, Oceans, that says, I will call upon your name. Keep my eyes above the waves. My soul will rest in your embrace. I am yours and you are mine. God wants to be that lover of your soul. So before we leave this place today, I want to make sure you've had the opportunity to call upon his name. You've been listening to The Barnabas Effect with Pastor Paul Purvis. The Barnabas Effect is here to provide listeners like you with biblical truth and spiritual encouragement. But it can't be done without your financial support. Go to missionhill.org and click on the Give tab. Your financial support helps us reach those seeking truth about God and themselves. Thank you for giving at missionhill.org. Be encouraged by The Barnabas Effect with Pastor Paul Purvis. Weekdays at 9 a.m. on Faith Talk Tampa. Online at letstalkfaith.com.